And now our speaker, Dr. Rylan Kagan. She's assistant professor of orthopedics and rehabilitation in the School of Medicine at OHSU. He earned his medical degree from Albany Medical College and then came here to Portland for residency at OHSU, also doing a fellowship in adult joint reconstruction and hip preservation at the University of Utah. Dr. Kagan, a Portland native, understands the importance of uh, keeping our patients mobile and has invested in both surgical and non-operative care. Thank you, Dr. Kagan. Dr. Rylan Kagan, She's assistant professor of orthopedics and rehabilitation in the School of Medicine at OHSU. He earned his medical degree from Albany Medical College and then came here to Portland for residency at OHSU, also doing a fellowship in adult joint reconstruction and hip preservation at the University of Utah. Hey there. At, at, uh, sorry, doctor. At, just to interject here, I think you may still have both windows open, the one that you originally joined with where you were stuck as an attendee and the one where uh, you were invited as a presenter. So you may want to close the old window in order to prevent all that further feedback. Okay, close that. Hopefully this is better. Yeah, we're not hearing an echo anymore. Just wanted to make sure. All right, you're good to go. Thank you. Thanks for the introduction. Um, as mentioned, my specialty is mostly hip and knee replacements, but I have an interest in hip preservation as well. That kind of uh, feeds into a little of this presentation. Uh, I'm going to be talking about mostly hip and knee arthritis. I want to give some kind of just basics on what arthritis is, talk about the, the specific differences within osteoarthritis and the inflammatory arthropathy, some of the um, aspects of post-traumatic arthritis. And because this is for medicine, uh, kind of primary care uh, audience, we're gonna talk about non-operative management, talk about some pre-operative optimization for those patients who are potentially surgical candidates. And then I wanna introduce some future um, avenues for uh, non-operative treatment uh, for uh, hip and knee arthritis. So jumping right into this, uh, so I think it's really important to know the definitions. When we say arthritis, that's this broad term, it's just an itis, so it's just an inflammation, and that's due to uh, pathology of a joint. So pretty simple, but then when we get into this, osteoarthritis is what is most commonly that I treat and what most commonly you'll see. And all osteoarthritis is, is just a gradual wearing away or wear and tear of uh, either hip or knee. Um, and then, then that is very different than the inflammatory arthropathy. So the rheumatoid arthritis, your spondylar arthropathies, lupus, psoriatic arthritis, and there's some key important uh, differences I'll touch on briefly. And then post-traumatic arthritis develops after trauma, kind of obvious. And avascular necrosis is another uh, aspect we're going to touch on briefly here that can lead to arthritis. Um, and then that is a loss of the blood supply in the knee or most commonly in the hip from either steroids, alcohol abuse, uh, chemo, sickle cell, or another variety of uh, conditions. So osteoarthritis, Simply put, it is that cartilage matrix falling apart. So fragmentation and failure of the matrix, which leads to an inflammatory process that then leads to pain and disability. So what we actually see as that fragmentation of the matrix happens is an increase in water content and you get a changing of your matrix. So you actually have this increase of these um, non-aggregated glycosaminoglycans and it gets somewhat stiff, but it just starts to fragment and fall apart, and that actually uh, causes that inflammation. So osteoarthritis, and the reason I bring this up and spend a minute on it, is not the same as normal aging. So 
normal aging will happen and that is just i put this picture of a desert here it's i couldn't find one without the cracks in it but think of this without the cracks so it's just drying up cartilage it can get yellow and stiff and you can have more cross-linking and changes but it, it often doesn't lead to arthritis or pain so normal aging is not the same as osteoarthritis um, and then knee arthritis is incredibly common good for my job security but it's something that everyone here is going to deal with either in themselves a loved one or in your patients nearly half of American adults are gonna develop knee arthritis and at least one knee. So it's really common. The incidence numbers are below and you can see how common knee arthritis really is, almost three times as much as hip and hip is really quite common. So risk factors for this, um, you know, ladders are kind of like the bane of orthopedics. You know, we just hear ladder fall is just awful. So articular trauma um, in any way, not just ladder, but increasing age is a risk factor, even though I mentioned how, um, Osteoarthritis is different than normal aging. Uh, it is a risk factor. And then elevated BMI is another risk factor for arthritis. And then also metabolic syndrome. And I think it's important to point out that metabolic syndrome can happen regardless of BMI. So even at healthy weights, people can have increased risk factors for metabolic syndrome, whether it's poorly controlled diabetes, increasing risk for a multitude of other things. And, and my personal thought is a lot of this elevated BMI and risk factors for arthritis is probably more to what it takes to become an elevated BMI um, in terms of the pro-inflammatory diets, all these other aspects, and then instead of the actual weight itself. But we'll talk about that more later. One of the things I really want you to gain from this talk is, is the ability to look at a patient who comes in with knee pain or hip pain and be able to do an appropriate workup. And, and that really oftentimes starts with getting the appropriate imaging. Um, this is something that I see quite commonly uh, from primary care doctors is that uh, non-weight-bearing or supine x-rays are ordered. They are basically worthless. So please, if you can take one thing away from this talk, do not ever get a supine or a non-weight-bearing x-ray of a lower extremity, if the, unless the person can't stand, obviously. But if the person can stand and weight-bear in any way, you need to get weight-bearing x-rays. And that's because that joint space where you have that degeneration and that wearing out and that breakdown of the cartilage, you may not be able to see on the supine x-ray. And here's an example. So you look at these knees and you have the supine x-ray that was done and the joint space or that space between the femur and tibia is actually well preserved. And then you have the same patient with a standing weight and the weight goes through that medial compartment on the inside of your knees. And now you can see some quite severe end-stage arthritis in that medial compartment with a basically bone on bone. So always get weight-bearing x-rays if you can. So I wanna walk you guys through what I get for when I see a new patient for a knee arthritis evaluation. So one of the x-rays that I get is just an AP knee x-ray. I have a few technical aspects, but basically this is just a, a straight shot at the knee. This is again, upright or weight-bearing, however you wanna put it, you gotta get that. It's with the knee in full extension. But it's also really quite important to get a 45 degree flex knee view when you're looking at arthritis, in addition to just your straight AP. So you can see a picture of this. This is when they're bending there at about 45 degrees. And what this is gonna do is really engage that kind of mid flexion aspect 
of the condyles on the tibia. And you can see here, this is that same patient as below. And when we have this uh, weight-bearing uh, 45 degree flex knee view, you can see on that right knee, on the lateral compartment, that joist space really go down. And that's because it's bringing a different piece of that um, femoral condyle down in contact with the plateau. So this is another important view. You may have it termed the Rosenberg or the Salt Lake view, but um, you should just call it what it is. It's a 45 degree um, flex knee view, and it is a weight bearing view also. And always get a lateral weight bearing. Uh, uh, the laterals we get for our weight bearing is about 30 de degrees of flexion. Um, here's an example of a good one of these. I have some technical aspects here, but there's a lot you should look at besides just the knee. I always look in the posterior aspect of the knee and look in the back for calcified vessels. Uh, for me, I have some technical things I look at that I wouldn't expect you to, to really fully have to appreciate, looking at where the kneecap sits in relationship to the trochlea and the femur, um, and then looking at the position of the femur on the tibia. This is a really important view. It gives you a lot of tips um, about what's going on in that knee. And then it's also really important to get a tangential view of the patellofemoral joint. We think about the knee often as that uh, tibiofemoral articulation, but you also have to think about your patella. And uh, it's really important to get a tangential view there. And what I always like to get is both knees on the, on the same plate. It is a merchant view is what I standard get. Um, it is about 45 degrees of the patient sitting and it shoots right down that trochlea. You may hear the term sunrise view. A true sunrise view is with a patient really hyperflex. And that has a few uh, connotations because as you really hyperflex the knee, uh, it's going to really engage that patella. And so there are indications for doing that. But I think a, a standard workup would just be a merchant view. Okay. Um, I don't expect you as a, a primary care or other doctor to get these in clinic, these long standing views. This is something that we have now in our clinic. I just want to introduce it because. Pretty excited that we have this now. Uh, we have this EOS machine, so it basically shoots an AP and a lateral at the same time, and it's all on one cassette, and it really gives you your alignment, and this is for us as we preoperatively plan. We can really think about how we're going to make our osteotomies or our cuts to correct deformities, um, and it, it's it's quite nice for us as we're moving forward with uh, you know some of our new technology, whether it be computer navigation or robotics. Combining this with that can really help us uh, plan and get things kind of tuned in and perfect for afterwards. Okay, moving on to some hip arthritis. Also very common, as I mentioned before, it's about uh, a third as common as knee, but still quite common. And there is one unique thing with hip arthritis where uh, in the younger age uh, demographics, men actually have a higher prevalence of hip arthritis. You know, we think some of this may be some congenital um, hip things, either FAI or um, hip conditions like perthy, slip, capital femoral pyphysis, some things like that. Uh, but then as we look at the older population, it's actually more common in uh, women as they get older. But there's this, this interesting young um, higher prevalence in some men before the age of 50, which we don't fully understand. Some of that, though, may be related to the risk factors, so slightly different than in knee. This idea of um, either developmental dysplasia, DDH is that, or FAI is femoral acetabular impingement, which we can see in some uh, young males. Age itself, again, is uh, a risk factor, and, and again, there are those gender differences I mentioned with uh, some young males having a higher prevalence, but then overall it is more common in women. Again, those same two elevated BMI and metabolic syndrome are, are risk factors for hip arthritis as well. Again, it's incredibly important you get weight-bearing x-rays. 
For us, what we get was we want to see a hip-centered AP pelvis. So you can see here, this is a good hip-centered AP pelvis. Um, it does sometimes miss the top of the pelvis, and that's okay. Ideally, it would capture all the pelvis, but uh, this is this is the x-ray we want to get when we're thinking about hip arthritis. So weight-bearing hip-centered AP pelvis. Okay, and then I tend to get uh, AP hip as well. Um, you can see that this gives you a little bit more view of the proximal femur. That's important for us as we start to think about our implant selection or some other things, especially maybe in the revision setting. So we really can can evaluate some more extra articular deformities. Moving on to lateral views of the hip. Uh, a cross table lateral hip x-ray is the hip x-ray you should be getting for hips. And this is a picture of what it is here. So the, the femoral neck and head has about 15 degrees of anaversion. Sorry, this picture above shows 20 degrees and ideally you should have them internally rotate about 15. And what that is trying to do is bring that neck and shaft within the same plane. So that axial plane rotation that we all normally have there will come together. The key with this cross table lateral is this is actually a true lateral x-ray of both the pelvis and acetabulum, which we're looking at, and of the femur. And I'll mention that uh, later when you guys see some other x-rays. So it's really important for us um, as we're looking at things. This is kind of for me what I look at all the key aspects here. And here's a patient of mine after a hip x-ray. So you can really see this good lateral view of the acetabular component. So I can see how well I was able to match their uh, native version. And then you can see it going down. So you get a good lateral view of both. And that's really important about a cross table lateral. So you may also see a frog leg or a rollout lateral. Here's what this looks like on that picture. So this is a pseudo lateral of the femur and not a lateral of the pelvis. For me, this is basically a, a worthless x-ray. Please don't get these. Um, try to get the cross table laterals. The only time this is ever indicated if the patient can't do a cross table lateral. It's a really inadequate lateral of either, so it doesn't add that much information. You really wanna think about getting tangential views um, and, and the best way to get that is with a cross table lateral. Okay. So that's the basic imaging workup for hip and knee arthritis. Moving on to some uh, inflammatory arthropathies. These are, are very common. I just mentioned some of the more common ones. This is not meant to be an inclusive list or a full talk about inflammatory arthropathy. I'm not a rheumatologist and, and don't try to pretend to, but I wanna mention some key aspects of imaging because oftentimes you may be the ones diagnosing these. Um, this is a patient of mine with rheumatoid arthritis. And what we see on x-rays like these, which are really kind of classic, are these erosions, these periarticular erosions or periarticular soft tissue swelling. So if you look on this x-ray, especially right around the medial aspect of that right knee, you can see that periarticular soft tissue swelling. And um, you can also see these erosions and these cystic changes in the joint without big osteophytes or subchondral sclerosis. So this picture, if you ever see something that just looks different, like why does this not look right? Uh, any of, unlike those last x-rays, be aware for inflammatory arthropathies. This is kind of that really classic picture of rheumatoid arthritis right here. Um, I bring this up for completion. I wouldn't expect you necessarily to get this, but if you do have maybe a young male patient who has a lot of back pain, maybe a bunch of inflammation, multiple joints affected, do start to think about the spondyloarthropathies. And this is the x-ray you can get to really look down at that SI joint. It's called a Ferguson view. And if you put that in, it can help your uh, radiology techs get that. And that's gonna look the, down on the SI joints to, to maybe pick up a little early aspect of that. Okay, 
what, what I hope you can get out of this about inflammatory arthropathy is how to do initial screening and order the initial laboratory prior to consulting rheumatology. As a, a specialist, you know, I always appreciate when you get the right x-rays and then consult, and they do too. I've, I've spoken with um, our rheumatologists and they've helped me make the next few slides. And then there's some key perioperative medical management for this. And as a primary care doctors who are going to be doing pre-op evaluations, it's important to understand some of the basics of this as well. So this is, again, this is not just from me. This is from some help of our rheumatologists at OHSU. If you have a patient that you suspect has rheumatoid arthritis, um, this is a good initial screening lab work to get, which would be a RF factor, an ESR, a CRP, and an anti-CCP antibody test. And these are just serum lab tests. If it is maybe that younger male or you suspect ankylosing spondylitis or another one of the spondyloarthropathies, you can add in that HLA-B27. Again, the ESR and CRPs are on that same one. So this would be the time to add the HLA-B27 is if you suspect the spondyloarthropathy. And why is this really important too is um, these medicines are becoming more and more common, these biologics or these DMARDs as we often um, term them. I mean, it's, you can't watch like a sports game or anything on TV without seeing a commercial for Embrel or Humira or I mean anything on TV now with these. And these medicines are pretty amazing in terms of how they've changed the lives of a lot of patients living with this. But they do have some very important aspects when you start thinking about perioperative management. So why do you and I care? These are becoming more and more common. The numbers are here. Almost half of rheumatoid arthritis patients are on these biologics. Um, and then you can see some of the other numbers here. Okay, so how do you manage these? This is a really great collaborative effort between um, our association, which is ACUS, American Associate Hip and Knee Surgeons, and the rheumatologists got together. And these are some of the leaders in both of our fields and basically said, we need to help figure out how we manage these medicines perioperatively for the time of joint replacements to lower the risks, uh, but also to make sure we're not unnecessarily stopping medicines that can safely be continued. And so basically, this is online. This is freely available. I encourage you. We have this in our clinic, um, just laminated in all the clinics we're at. Um, and, and this is a, just a great paper to refer to if you ever are questioning about when to stop a patient's medicine before they're having a major elective surgery. And it's really nice. This is the table. I don't expect you to like get everything out of this. I just want to show this is in there and we keep this laminated just, excuse me, in clinic. And it tells you exactly when to continue or hold medicines prior to a surgery and when to restart them after, which is key. <clears throat> okay, moving on to a little different type of arthritis. Post-traumatic arthritis is really quite different and has some key different aspects. Um, it is less common, but it is often in a younger patient and it's after a paraarticular trauma. And so for in TKA or total knees, um, it makes the knee much more challenging. They often have old incisions, they'll have bone loss, deformity, ligamentous injuries. And it's really important when you're, when you're seeing patients with these to understand that these have a much higher complication rate. These are not the same as your standard patient with knee arthritis. And they do account for a much higher um, consumption of hospital resources and higher costs associated per episode of care. This is a quick case example of a patient in my 52-year-old young patient. I think he actually was a ladder who fell off, had this plateau fracture, underwent fixation, and you can see here on his CT, he's just missing this huge chunk of bone there laterally, and he has developed now post-traumatic arthritis. So one of the key things if you see patients like this, 
preoperative labs, anytime someone's had an old, old surgery and has hardware, and it's really important not to miss a low-grade chronic infection. So we always screen with ESR and CRP labs. And that really helps us think about if we're going to do these as one surgery or often as a stage surgery. So in a patient like this, he did have uh, elevated ESR and CRP. And so what I did is the first surgery is took all the hardware out, took deep bone biopsies, cleaned it out, let it sit and heal, and we had then made sure that there's no uh, bacteria in those and that this was uh, uh, aseptic joint at this point, or at least suspected to be. And then we went back and did the reconstruction later, which you can see here, with kind of different implants than our standard. So similar to knee, um, hip replacement in post-traumatic settings is different. It's more technically difficult, and there's a higher risk of complications, just as I mentioned there before. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. I do want to spend a few minutes on avascular necrosis, just because as someone who spends some of their life on hip preservations, I think that this is um, something that um, hopefully we can we can help uh, give you a little education on. It is, it's relatively common, up to 5 to almost 20% of hips done in the U.S. are from avascular necrosis or osteonecrosis, however it's termed. And they can be from trauma, alcohol, uh, lupus, steroids, radiation. And the treatment really depends on the patient. So it depends on the age, the stage, and the size of the lesion. So we have a couple classifications. You may see these on your radiology reports. This is the most common, the FICAT-SAT classification, and this is based on just plain x-rays. And really the big um, delineation here is between the two and threes, where you're starting to see that breaking of the uh, articular cartilage. So that subcondyl bone stops being able to support the joint and the cartilage above it, and it can start to fall apart. Another one is based on MRI, the Steinberg one, and I'll kind of walk you through some examples. I don't want to spend too much time on this. <clears throat> so treatment options for this, um, core decompression basically is our way of just drilling into the lesion to try to decompress it and then bring blood supply into it. Oftentimes we augment that with a biologic augmentation. I'll take you through a case example of that. There are some reports of bringing in some vascularized bone grafting um, and then different osteotomies, so cutting to change the position, which I don't really like either of those a lot. And oftentimes I will send these patients back to uh, their primary care or other physician for uh, bisphosphonate treatments. It's a medical treatment and there's some reasonable literature uh, to show that that could potentially in certain situations prevent the further progression of avascular necrosis, especially the femoral head. And then uh, extracorporeal shockwave therapy, potentially not maybe the best literature, and anticoagulation too. I think I don't really do anticoagulation very often in these settings. I prefer bisphosphonates if we're going to go for medical treatment because there's a lot of other uh, you know, potential consequences with the anticoagulation. For the early stage patients, uh, pre-collapsed patients um, with this, I generally will discuss and, and uh, offer them bisphosphonates, uh, so medical treatment. And depending on some of their factors, we'll also discuss core decompression, that drilling with or without augmentation, and then some of these other ones. And then as it gets later in the stages, um, or if they're older in age, we start talking about hip replacement. Even some of the ones that haven't fully collapsed if they're older and having significant symptoms. So I just want to give you a, a couple cases just to, to kind of show you how I start thinking about some of these patients. Um, this first case is a 21-year-old male, came in, um, really great success. He, he celebrated his one-year anniversary of successful bone marrow transplant after having AML. And then um, 
started having some hip pain and we're looking at the right, try not to get distracted over there on the left. He had an old uh, trauma MVC, but left side actually was fine. It's this right hip that he's coming in with this, this sharp groin pain for, I think it was about a month. And so you get these x-rays and you really don't see much. I mean, maybe there's some, some really subtle osteopenia in that femoral head, or maybe the touch of a little sclerotic line, but really pretty normal x-ray. So, so that's a good start. And I think in these situations, getting an MRI is a great next step. This is how I measure these. You look at this mid-coronal x-ray and then a mid-axial. And I'm measuring this angle of this lesion to try to get an idea of the overall size of how much of a position of this is it taking up in the femoral head. And we look at this caribou necrotic angle and this gives us some prognostic information. You combine these two and it gives you either low, moderate or high risk. And for him, it was moderate, but he was really quite young. So in staging him, he was stage two on both of our classification stage, this pre-collapse stage. So I talked to him about a lot of options. And after talking about this for a while, we elected to proceed, especially with him being so young, with a core decompression, with a biologic augmentation, which is what I'll generally do for these patients. So here's our intraoperative x-rays. So this is uh, basically a, a bone marrow uh, biopsy trocar that we're putting in the iliac crest here. And we put this in and we take a bone marrow aspirate. So we're taking out as much of the stem cells we can from there. And we put it in uh, the centrifuge and we get this spinning down to try to get that precipitate. And while that's spinning down, it takes about 15 minutes to get it spun down. What we do is we then decompress that lesion. So you can take see this here, uh, this is cannulated and I take this and I get this as close to that subchondral surface as I can to get into the lesion to try to open it up and you can see there uh, on the very bottom of your screen is that cannula now removed. And now I'm gonna inject in that um, autograph. So the stem cells that I've taken out and spun down and got that precipitate from. And here he is one year after the surgery. You can see some sclerotic lines in the femoral head. You can actually see that a little better where the lesion was, but the key is it's filled in and it hasn't collapsed and he's doing quite well. So this young patient, even though he had a moderate risk of having uh, collapsed, you know, this is a hip we were able to save, at least for now. Um, here's another case. This is a slightly older patient, uh, so 37. He came in with about seven months of duration, so not that. And you can see here he's a VA outsource, so of course it took six months for them to get into my clinic. So obviously some different factors here when we're thinking about this older already had symptoms for seven months, took forever to get into clinic. And when you see this patient's hip, and even on the plain x-rays, you can really quite appreciate that diffuse osteopenia of the femoral head. And you can see already that, that uh, lesion uh, in there with that sclerotic border. So really some, some tough prognostic signs, even on x-ray, which you can see really well there on that good cross-table lateral. You can basically see it almost looks like a punched out lesion of that weight-bearing portion of his femoral head. So then we also got an MRI on him and you look at this and this lesion encompasses almost all of his weight bearing portion of his femoral head. So this is a very large geographic uh, lesion. This is a patient who's already weighted, a little older in age. I did mention to him uh, some treatment options for preserving his hip. He was just done with it. And with this higher risk of collapse, we settled on just doing a hip replacement. I think it was a, you know, a good decision for him. He just wanted to get on his life. So here he is a year after surgery 
with this hip replacement. And in some of these young patients, we do have some alternative bearing surfaces. This is a ceramic on ceramic bearing. This will last him his whole life. This will never wear out. And that's what he chose. There's a lot of other aspects to that, which was uh, a topic for another conversation, another talk maybe if you had me back. And here's his hip now, it's doing quite well. Okay, moving on to some non-operative management. We're gonna start with knee and then go into hip. Our academy, which is the AOS or the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, has these clinical practice guidelines that are available for everyone. And you can just go to these links or just search AOS CPG clinical practice guidelines and these will come up and they have them for knee and hips. And these are really great resources that I encourage you all to have or at least know where they are to, to check on. So starting with the knee, what do we know that has strong evidence? Rehab education and wellness activity. That's, that's really kind of vague and so I'm gonna get into this a little bit. So what we recommend is participation in self-management programs. I'll go through those in a little more detail. Strengthening, kind of obvious. Low impact aerobic exercises, neuromuscular education, whether that be with therapy or not. And then engaging, obviously, in physical activity, kind of obvious, consistent with national guidelines. So that's slightly vague, but I want to talk to you about what I think is really important with this. One of the best things that I've taken away from this, and one of the things that has the best evidence out there that I can find for non-operative management of knee arthritis are these self-management programs. So these chronic disease self-management programs were developed for diabetes, other things, any like for chronic diseases. They're developed at Stanford and they're in this workshop type model. And the idea is they build confidence in managing these diseases over time. Currently, the, the classic one that was originally out, Stanford licensed out to different hospitals, clinics, you know, there's some even churches or senior centers out there. And participate, uh, patients participate, excuse me, for about six weeks. And some of the key aspects of this, which is great, is realistic goal setting, problem solving. You know, they make these action plans, which are just, they spend a lot of time with patients to think about it and really help them. And they can help with a lot of types of diseases. So this is a quick little map you can see of where I was able to find self-management programs around town. Um, I don't see any obviously at um, some of the west side Providence. I'm not sure. I think that one over there is probably Prov Portland, but it's a very important thing to look and know what is available for your patients and try to find this. Um, and you can even do the, the chronic disease self-management programs when there's an arthritis specific one not available. There's not a lot of arthritis specific ones around the Portland area that I could find. Uh, but I think any of these, these are quite uh, useful. Okay, um, this is what we have at Adventist Health. Um, as OHSU, I do practice half-time at Adventist Health. Um, and the program here that they've developed is called the CHIP program. It's kind of similar to these. It's a little less specific for arthritis or any one um, self-management plan, but what they're, what they're looking at here is doing those same ideas. They do some nutritional counselors, recipe, cookie, cook, uh, cooking tips, excuse me, wellness exercises. I think really, but the key is that it's a program. They work with patients and think about these things over time. So this is an example of one um, at Adventist where I work part-time that's great, and I, I'm sure there's some at Prov as well. So there are some cons. Cost, not only cost for the program to run it, and the logistics of having patients go every week, you know, for a couple hours a day, uh, not every day, but, you know, for six weeks, that's a lot. And not all insurers cover this. So 
these are really great, but I think it's going to take some more advocacy and, and maybe some more thinking about how we can make these work potentially as we, we shift to more telehealth or virtual uh, to really make this a little more feasible for, for kind of a broader audience. And you have to think about where your patients are live. You know, we see patients at OHSU from all over the state. Someone's out in you know, the outside of Pendleton, they're probably not going to have an easy access to one of these programs. So maybe as they go virtually, but there's some other practical aspects of it too. Okay. Other things that have strong evidence for non-operative management of knee arthritis are anti-inflammatory medicines, kind of obvious. They do include in here, if you notice, tramadol. Tramadol is this intermediate. It does have some opioid-like things. I really encourage you not to start with tramadol and really save that for the end and just start with your, your classic uh, NSAIDs. Personally, for dosing, I, I usually just do naproxen, but there's some other good options out there uh, for NSAIDs as well. Weight loss. So this is one of the things that kind of bothers me about what our guidelines say. They recommend weight loss for anyone with a BMI over 25. That's just not even realistic. So basically, it's also really hard, time-consuming thinking about weight loss. So this is out there. It's important you talk to people about weight loss, but it's also important that you're a little practical and not think everyone has to get their BMI down to under 25. Okay, and here, here's that. Yeah, don't be naive. Think about the practicality of asking everyone under, you know, above 25 to lose weight. That's just, you're, yeah, you're going to spend your whole life talking about it. And then you have to think about what resources your, your system has for that because, um, you know, it, these are things that need to be done safely, have take a long time over time. We have a bariatrics clinic at OHSU, which doesn't just do surgery. They do some really incredible uh, discussions with patients. They have uh, RNs dietitians and really a comprehensive way to, to talk about and work on weight loss or we're doing those self-management programs our chip program at adventist is another way that really works on weight loss over time so that's a really key aspect though for arthritis uh, every pound that a patient loses i'll tell them they're going to lose four pounds off of what their knee sees but, and what that is is the tibiofemoral articulation we'll see about four pounds so someone who loses 10 pounds that takes 40 pounds off every step of the knee and it can really help and then that's even more when you look at the patellofemoral articulation uh, especially with going up and down stairs or hills that's up to seven times the body weight it puts on the front of the knee with that so it can really make a dramatic difference even modest weight loss of 10 15 pounds can help people you know potentially delay or not have surgery for a long time Okay, moving on to some things maybe can do inconclusive evidence. Uh, I think one of the things that's really incredibly overused in our country is corticosteroid injections. Every now and then I'll give these out, but I really, hopefully, we can talk about this maybe at the end if we get some more time. There's not great evidence that any sort of injections really do anything. I mean, these steroids are just strong anti-inflammatories. I encourage people just to take anti-inflammatory medicines. And steroid injections, I find really to be the most overused thing that we do. There's not great evidence for it. You're potentially introducing bacteria into the joint, which can harm people later. It's just, yeah, there's a lot there. And what really not to do, HA injections, please don't do HA injections, hyaluronic acid or viscosupplementation injections. There's strong evidence against that. Glucosamine and chondroitin, just people are wasting their money on those but those are the just again injections overused no matter what flavor okay moving on to the hip so again strong evidence for anti-inflammatory medicines for non-op treatment of hip arthritis and this should be really the start of any medical treatment for any sort of arthritis are these anti-inflammatory medicines um, and here you can see the examples of some of the ones we commonly use 
Now in the hip, there is better evidence that intraarticular steroids can improve short-term function. Again, I'll say that short-term. So this is not something that's meant for long-term. And there are some really key aspects of hip injections. The cost of doing these, these need to be done under image guidance. Um, and then the practicality of these being done a lot. So maybe one, if it's someone who really wants to avoid a surgery, but um, I, I, I still give a lot of hesitation, even though this is out there for intraarticular hip injections. <clears throat> physical therapy, there's some good evidence about physical therapy for treatment of early. So I put this kind of in quotes for mild to moderate symptoms. So that really early patient, I think some PT can help with that. Um, as patients get further on, um, I think PT is a little less useful. Okay, again, don't do glucosamine. All right, one of the things that I want you guys to take away from this too is how to get your patient who comes in who may actually be thinking about needing a surgery, how to get them ready for that potential surgery and have them have the lowest risk when they go into the surgery of not having a complication. Hip and knee arthritis are two of the most successful surgeries that we have out there improve everything, um, overall quality of life, uh, function, but we got to make sure we get people ready for this so that they don't have a complication. So this is a, a article that's out there that's from um, ACUS, or excuse me, is from our um, Musculoskeletal uh, Infection Society and this International Consensus on Orthopedic Infections, and they put this together and publish this as a way to start thinking about these modifiable risk factors. Now, not all of these are fully modifiable, but uh, I think a lot of them are, and I want you to start thinking about it that way. So this one's kind of obvious. If someone has an active infection, they should not be, you know, referred to an orthopedic surgeon. And that can be a tooth abscess, uh, you know, a toe infection, anything like that. Get that all cleared, get the patient treated before you send them over to see us to talk about a joint replacement. And here's one of the reasons I'm really so against intraarticular injections. There is strong evidence that this puts people at risk of having a complication after the surgery. And when that complication that is a big dreaded complication is infection. So that probably carries fully out to one year after the injection. What I use is three months where I make people wait after any injection before I'll do their surgery. So really, if, if you're starting to think about someone ever potentially being a candidate for a surgery, just avoid injections. And then obesity, I talked about this briefly before about that practicality of getting everybody down to under a BMI of 25. But what I want you guys to get from this is, is that they're within that over 25, there's different class of patients. I really think about anyone under 30, that's just my nor normal patient population. Um, when they get their BMI over 30 to 35, that's when you can start talking to people about weight loss. And that's when I really do start talking about it because we see if we get people below 35, there's a lower risk of having a complication with a surgery. And we really try not to use cutoffs. I hate the term cutoff because I think you got to look at patients differently. But if, if you, you know, look at these numbers, a BMI over 40 puts people at a much higher risk of having a complication with a surgery. So I really consider that anyone above 40, uh, we're obliged to try to get them to work on weight loss before we do anything. And any of these other, these America, these super obese patients, really absolutely not candidates for surgery. These are the folks that really need to go see bariatrics right away or, or talk about weight loss in a more aggressive fashion. The problem though is there's not a great 
methodology for weight loss and how do we get them there? How do we do it safely, especially with bariatric surgery and then optimizing nutrition afterwards? So we're not 100% um, clear with this, but it is a very modifiable thing. It's just takes some time and, and some effort. It's a difficult one. Okay, so if patients have had bariatric surgery, that itself is a risk factor. And a key for this is that can be offset by malnutrition. So anyone who's had bariatric surgery following nutrition labs over time, ensuring you know, you're, you're looking at that and that malnutrition workup, having them see nutritionists is key for this. This is what I, I usually get for malnutrition is uh, serum albumin and oftentimes uh, total lymphocyte count and a transferrin. And we want to look at those and make sure that those are all up, up to par. Otherwise, we'll often get people to see a nutritionist um, or, or optimize those before a surgery. Now, diabetes is kind of a unique aspect of this because diabetes itself, I don't think is necessarily the risk factor. So patients with really well-controlled diabetes don't have higher risk for post-op complications like infections if they're very well-controlled. That said, it's likely not diabetes itself. It, it's, it's probably, if you think about that, that's an indirect marker for a patient with poorly controlled diabetes for having other serious comorbid conditions. But when I look at these patients, the things that I wanna see is if you look back at a spot glucose, if they have any spot glucoses over the last you know, month or so that are over 200, that's a patient in my eyes that is not ready for an elective surgery. They need better glucose, perioperative glucose control. They need a better plan. And when we look at A1C numbers, for me, the number I really want people at is seven. I gotta get people to seven. You know, in, in a healthy patient, if it's between seven, seven and a half, that's, that's reasonable. The number here from this paper says eight is an absolute contraindication. I think that's pretty clear in the literature, but really getting people down to seven is my goal. Um, chronic kidney disease, modifiable, you just, yeah, obviously just trying to get patients uh, to have this under control. Oftentimes people who have CKD, you can't get it completely fixed. But um, I bring this up because there's one thing that we get asked a lot. Patients who are on hemodialysis are not a candidate for an elective joint replacement surgery. That patient needs to have their solid organ transplant, their kidney transplant before they have their hip or knee replacement. And that can be a really tough thing for patients um, because they, you know, their hip or knee will hurt and they're gonna have to participate in the recovery for the, the renal transplant, but it's gonna greatly decrease their risk of having um, a complication or infection. There's some subtle nuances to that, which if you guys are really interested in reaching out, um, you can talk to us about later, uh, but that, that is our uh, recommendation. We do check everyone for colonization. I'm gonna go through a few of these a little quickly just for the sake of time because we started a little late. Hepatitis C is an important factor. If you have a patient with hepatitis C, that is something now that we have treatments for that needs to be treated uh, before uh, a joint replacement. Um, so we will not do, well, for the most part, especially at OHS, we will not be doing that joint replacement if they have hep C that has not been treated. So that's, that's something that can be treated before and is modifiable. Smoking, obviously uh, modifiable. Patients need to quit smoking, be off of nicotine. And, and it's important that you ask patients about marijuana. It's Oregon, we need to be realistic. Our patients will be using marijuana. Uh, for me, we have a lot of concerns about patients using marijuana or marijuana products at the time of surgery because we're gonna be giving them pain meds, other things. Um, I do tell patients they have to be smoke-free, any type of inhalation smoking for at least four weeks before a joint replacement. 
Um, there are patients who use CBD creams or take CBD edibles afterwards. I caution them with it with other medicines that we don't know how everything interacts, but you know, there, there are some, some folks who, who see some benefit in that. Obviously, IV drug abuse. There is more with these. Um, I don't have time to talk about this. I could give a whole lecture just on getting people ready for joint replacement, but it's a really great thing that you can do to look through some of this stuff and get people really ready before you bring them in. And just while I have a couple minutes, sorry, I've been going real fast to catch back up. I just want to spend a few minutes on what I think the future is for some of these non-operative knee um, arthritis patients. And the two big things I think that are going to happen over the next five to 10 years uh, that are going to be used more and more are geniculate nerve ablations and geniculate nerve embolizations, basically treating the nerves that, that you know, innervate the knee. So my indications for these two procedures are that patient with either mild to moderate arthritis with really severe symptoms. And we've all seen this, you know, you get that x-ray and yeah, sure, they have some arthritis, maybe they have some degenerative meniscal tearing, it's just, it, it's not a normal knee, but they have these incredibly severe debilitating symptoms that are discordant with their um, arthritis. And that's a really good patient for this. And I think that these procedures especially because they target the nerves, can help maybe help break that. These are your fibromyalgia patients, patients with chronic pain, issues like that. And then there are some patients who, who have severe arthritis who are not candidates for surgery. Uh, for whatever medical reasons, they may need to get their hepatitis C treated, they may need to lose weight, whatever it is, that's when these, these can really help buy that patient time while they optimize them before they become a surgical candidate. The geniculate nerve ablations are two flavors of them. Um, I don't have one that really, you know, I don't have a horse in the race between these two, but um, our pain center, which I'm going to introduce, uses more of the radio frequency ablation. That's on your bottom panel. And what that is, is a probe that goes in and uses radio frequency that's going to ablate the nerves going to the knee. Um, and then the other one, which you're going to see in your top of the screen with those three little probes in it that looks like a fancy toothbrush holder up there. That is the cryoablation. And so what that does is actually freezes the nerves that go down to the knee. Same nerve innervations, but by freezing them, you're just killing the inside of the nerve, leaving that axon sheath. So it'll come back over time. But really the idea of these is it breaks that cycle of pain. And these can be quite beneficial, I think. Um, <clears throat> there's still not a ton of literature. This is the best thing I could find out there about the radio frequency. Um, for chronic pain. This is an RCT and what they looked at was improving um, visual analog scores and then they, they did a, a Oxford knee score in the ablation group and those were improved at all these time points. So even after 12 weeks there was that. But then you know small study only 38 patients so hard for us to really you know fully adapt this with this until there's a little more literature. There's some more I don't have time to kind of go through this all but uh, if you have patients and there's not good resources at Providence um, who are doing these procedures, I encourage you to consider a consultation with Kim Maurer. She's the director of our pain center uh, or for the Comprehensive Pain Center at OHSU. She's an anesthesiologist by training. She, I send a ton of patients to her. and We work together on some of this stuff and we've given talks on pain around knee and hip. And, and she does these procedures and, and she can be a great resource for some of these patients who may not be ready for a surgery. And then the next procedure is a geniculate artery embolization. So basically embolizing the arteries that supply those nerves. And they actually embolize some abnormal vessels that we can be seeing. I mentioned this is an inflammatory response. And so some of the thought is that that inflammatory response 
causes a synovial inflammation, angiogenesis is hyperplasia, leading to the sensory nerve growth. And so by embolizing them, you can kind of not only reduce the pain, but calm that whole process down. And this is a day procedure done under same day recovery. Um, here's a good slide that was put together by our uh, interventional radiologist, just showing these improvements in VAS and Womax scores, which is uh, just another functional outcome score. Uh, and both of these were improved, and these were durable over time, all the way out to year two, uh, for this mild to moderate group again. Um, this is uh, one of our interventional radiologists here. I encourage you guys to consider uh, sending patients to if you have any interest in this. Uh, Yulin Koth, she's uh, amazing. She also does some really interesting stuff around um, some of her uh, women's health, the pelvic stuff, if you ever have those patients. You know, she'd also be probably a great speaker for one of these to talk about that as a separate thing. But this is an emerging technology. And if you have patients you think uh, aren't ready for a surgery, I encourage you to think about these other two things because I think they're going to really be a good thing for the future moving forward. I have reached the end of my time, so I'll uh, stop talking and hopefully people have some questions. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Kagan, um, for the super comprehensive talk um, and sneaking in uh, with a late start. So. Um, I think you know our audience has a lot of interest in also the non-operative management. I know you touched on this briefly, but um, particular questions if you remind us once more about any evidence for knee osteoarthritis, for quad strengthening exercises, as well as the unloader knee brace or heel wedges. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, kind of going back through here, um, when I look at, especially in the knee, um, I think of quad strengthening itself kind of more as this whole process of um, neuromuscular education and anything that is going to help strengthen the muscles around the knee are going to be beneficial. So strengthening is really kind of vague around here. Quad sets are an important part of this. Um, neuromuscular education, if, if you have a patient who maybe isn't the most medically literate, getting them involved with some really physical therapy to give them home exercises that are going to be beneficial is a good one. I don't think just handing someone a piece of paper and saying, go do some quad strengthening, your knee is going to feel better, is going to help that patient. You know, you really need to, to kind of take a more comprehensive view of that. Um, in terms of the, the shoe inserts, I never recommend those. It just doesn't make any sense to me. And put something in my shoe is going to shift your access. Like, in practicality, no. And the evidence really isn't isn't good for those either. We kind of list those in this um, bottom bin here where it's um, maybe you can do these. Inconclusive evidence for any of these, you know, offloader braces. And you guys have seen those big bulky offloader braces. I encourage you before you ever prescribe them again, put one on and try to wear one for an hour and then think about and walk around, do like an hour of clinic with a knee offloader brace and then recommend that to a patient and tell them to go live their life with it. It's just not feasible. It sounds good, but in practicality, just no way. Great, thanks. Appreciate the practice, um, the practical tips. Um, we, I want to respect the time. We do have just about a minute left. It's okay if we go a couple moments over, but we will wrap this up with the last question. Um, I think there's often a question from a primary care audience about earlier as opposed to later referral, um, particularly when patients are considering joint replacement. Um, so just some some thoughts there and maybe like what our patients might um, in general terms expect if they are kind of on the fence. 
I think if you have a patient on the fence and you've been working with them for a little while on some of these non-operative things, it is always appropriate for them to have a consultation with someone who does joint replacements. It is not committing them to say, you're going to go get a hip or knee replacement, but having them come talk to me so I can say, okay, you know, this is what uh, entails a joint replacement. And maybe just giving them some more education about it, about the risks and potential benefits and helping them just start thinking about it in a more comprehensive fashion. Uh, it is always appropriate to have them come see us at any point if they're starting to even think about that. Never delay. I would think the only time I would ask you guys not to send someone to us is if they have some very obvious modifiable risk factors. Some of those things I mentioned, someone with active hepatitis C, someone with a BMI over 40, someone who's an active smoker. Those are patients you gotta try to get those things better before you send them. But if it's just a normal patient who maybe has moderate arthritis, who isn't quite ready, but just wants to learn more, absolutely send them over. We'll, we'll talk to them. Great, many thanks. You have a couple of specific questions that maybe we'll, we'll try to get off to you individually. Yep. Um, and um, we do, I think, have some of our physical medicine and rehab colleagues um, starting to use some of the nerve ablations um, for the geniculate nerve. Uh, one question about whether that seems to have any effect on the kinesthetic sense and putting people at risk for abnormal movement or trauma, sort of side effects from these that you've seen? No, I don't think so. Uh, I mean, anyone with arthritis is already going to have an abnormal joint and, and not normal, potentially knee kinematics and have some of these things like quadriceps inhibition or maybe potentially abnormal gait. So I don't worry about that. Um, and really, they're getting the sensory nerves. Um, I'd have to talk with Dr. Maurer. She's done a ton of these and she actually does the procedures. I only see a small subset of, of those patients because she really tries to get to them and only send me the people who need a knee replacement, uh, which is kind of nice. Um, and so maybe she has a little more information, but I don't worry about that at all. Great. Great. Well, we will let you go. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Kagan. A lot of useful information. Take care. Thank you for having me.